Welcome to The Weather Pod, the podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Today it's our pleasure to welcome Professor Alberto Trocoli, Managing Director of the World Energy and Meteorology Council and Visiting Professor at the University of East Anglia, to the WeatherPod. Previously, Alberto worked at NASA, ECMWF, the University of Reading, and CSIRO. He's published extensively on weather and climate risks, authored a number of books including Weather Matters for Energy and Weather and Climate Services for the Energy Industry. He's also the convener of the International Conference of Energy and Meteorology. Alberto, a big welcome to the WeatherPod. Yes, welcome Alberto. Many thanks for coming along today. It's my pleasure to be here with you, uh, Alan and David. So, Alberto, perhaps uh, you could start by telling us briefly about the um, the Energy and Meteorology Council, its vision, mission, and who are its members? Yes, thanks. So, the uh, World Energy Meteorology Council is uh, set up as a non-profit. Essentially, it's a company limited by guarantee established uh, in the UK uh, in 2015. Uh, with base, it started with... Uh, uh, the connection and the support from the University of East Anglia, and it's still based uh, in on campus at the University of East Anglia. So we like to keep that connection uh, with the university, but uh, there's no particular preference for for the university. We want to be able to reach out to all research organisations and uh, energy industry to provide uh, uh, support for use of best weather and climate for, for energy, for sustainable energy, lower low carbon economy, and enhance release, resilience of energy infrastructure. Do, do your activities um, involve developing countries? Yes, they do. Uh, in fact, uh, we have uh, an MOU with uh, WMO. We work very closely with WMO. We work also with the World Bank. And so we've done several activities in, uh, in various parts of the world, including Africa and uh, working on South America now and, and various other places. So, yes. Great. Uh, thanks, Alberto. I, I wanted just to move on to uh, essentially the needs of uh, the energy sector for meteorological information. And I, I wondered, I suppose, particularly we're talking about renewable energy here. How would you sort of describe the specific needs of the energy sector for for weather and climate information? And I suppose by 
that kind of information, I'm talking about all sorts, whether it be observations, analyses, or forecasts. Um, I, what, what are really the needs of the renewable energy uh, sector for this kind of information? Well, uh, the, the needs are really broad, and uh, it is now much more evident with uh, renewable energy, of course, but uh, use of uh, weather and climate information by the energy industry has been uh, happening for decades because, you know, it's, it's part of um, many activities in energy, not only renewables, including the exploration. So when you go out at sea, you know, we need to have a good forecast for the vessels and uh, also to pr produce a demand uh, forecast. So this has been uh, obviously something that has been uh, part of uh, how we live uh, for, for a while in terms of uh, how we use energy, depending on uh, how the climate is, whether it's hot and so on. So in that sense... Alberto, could you give us a sketch as to, you know, you, you mentioned forecasts for, for demand management. What What kind of forecasts are we talking about what time range are we talking about you know what what are the specific kind of meteorological data that that are perhaps most crucial in terms of demand forecast the the most crucial one of course is temperature and uh the the the, the range of forecast is uh anywhere from let's say seconds minutes to longer term because uh you want to know uh how you balance the grid uh, for you know, a few minutes ahead and, and, and how to plan a few years ahead. So there, there are also variables that are important, like uh, wind speed or solar radiation in some cases, or humidity, but temperature is definitely the, the main one. Alberto, if, uh, am I right in thinking that if, if um, we transition to fully use, full use of renewables, I mean, to decarbonize our economies, and we're looking at renewable as the main source of electricity is there going to be a more demand for weather information and monitoring on the production side yeah absolutely uh, the the increase in uh, request for forecasting for example for renewable energy is obviously increasing as the share of renewables increases there's more and more need uh, uh, for for various reasons, uh, but uh, the the main one I guess is that uh, people are concerned about balancing the grid, and therefore you need to know how much energy is being produced at any one time so you can uh, balance that appropriately with demand, and that uh, that requires you know production of uh, forecast of uh, wind speed and uh, and therefore wind power and solar radiation, but. Uh, we also need to bear in mind that uh, the actual and current use of uh, renewable energy in general is is not that high at the moment. So the the, the demand is increasing, but uh, it will be much higher when we get to higher levels. You've, you've mentioned timescales like seconds and minutes uh, for this kind of the need for this kind of information on on that timescale, but on the other hand. Actually, weather forecasts for, for you know very local regions are very difficult. Actually, I mean, and typically, we're not really able yet to produce forecasts on on you know really short timescales and really small space scales. So I'm just kind of trying to connect, in a sense, with 
what data that we can produce today from the uh, the meteorological centres and and whether that's really fit for purpose at the moment. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a very interesting area of of innovation actually because uh, I guess uh, you Alan have uh, more in mind the traditional kind of uh, weather forecasting coming from a numerical weather prediction model, but. Uh, the, that's right, but uh, the uh, innovation has moved on, moved on quite a bit now, and uh, and it has to do that because uh, you know the companies producing this kind of uh, electricity have to have a good handle on what is being produced at any one time, and so what happens is that they started building and installing their own observations first of all, so on. Uh, you, you will find that on wind turbines, you have uh, a wind anemometer in each one of them uh, on uh, nacelle, so at the top of the, the wind tower, there is a wind measurement. And, and then all these wind measurements are collected together with other measurements, temperature and so on, whatever is relevant, including, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 you can use accelerometers to measure the height of clouds at, uh, at the sites. Uh, or, or lay, a lidar, um, so so there is all sorts of measurements, and this will then feed uh, different kind of forecasting models, typically uh, statistical models, uh, but they are also combined with uh, numerical weather prediction. So what what's been done basically is to find how to blend uh, all these observations, all the statistical models, with the numerical weather predictions in order to achieve the best. Uh, skill that gets the best accuracy at any one lead time and and this is actually yeah there's quite a lot of development in this phase including you know with the the latest uh, machine learning artificial intelligence models so if you come back to the um decarbonization and as you've said i mean renewables have not uh, i mean they're penetrating the market but they're not certainly taking over the market yet but assuming that they do do you see, um, I mean, is there a significant change in the way the market will be structured? And there are two questions I, I wanted to ask related to this. Is One, and does it put more burden on the producer uh, to promise a certain uh, supply and therefore the producer needs to really understand their capacity to actually generate energy at any given moment? And then second also, is there a, a potential for increasing uh, electrification in places where using renewables you could actually have a, a more of a, a distributed grid rather than a cent centralized production but rather it's a lot of smaller suppliers and uh, creating a market in a uh, local markets for energy is that is that also possible yeah so to answer your first uh, question the burden in a way is already with uh, producing companies so the, the wind power companies or the solar power companies or hydropower companies they they need to know uh, or it's in their interest to know how much they're going to produce at any one time like I was saying before and that's why they have all these observations on site because they are going to bid on the market and although uh, in uh, I think in most markets at the moment, renewables like wind and solar are given priority because they are considered zero cost uh, production. So there is a merit order um, 
kind of uh, scale and they they come in the market first but uh, still they need to, to bid on that market and if they produce too much they need to shed some of the load or indeed uh, they get curtailed by the regulators or the market operators and so uh, they need to be careful what they produce uh, I mean by careful I mean that they need to know exactly what they produce so they can tell what they're going to provide and and then uh, that that obviously needs again to match demand so that's always the target to, to to know what what is going to be needed at any one time so it's no good to produce a lot of uh, solar power um, you know in, uh, in in very sunny day when uh, you expect uh, the demand not be so high like in a so-called DAC uh, shape demand where you get the drop um, in, in demand during the day and, and instead you get this increase in solar power. And so, so these are all the headaches that uh, the market operators are facing now because of, uh, you know, in some places there are so large um, in, in use of, uh, of solar power, for, uh, for instance. And that, that leads to the second question because, um, you know, what, what is already happening in many countries where there's been subsidies, like starting from Germany, but then uh, Italy and also Australia, and to an extent even in the UK, they are uh, talking about uh, distributed solar power. This is mainly for solar power, so the rooftop solar. There's been uh, uh, such a a dramatic increase in uh, when the subsidies were on that uh, basically uh, the, the, the grid was forced to accept all this power coming from all the distributed uh, sources. What, um, so so that, that created issues with the, with the balancing and, uh, and obviously it was very difficult to predict. This is something that is one of the main challenges actually in prediction because uh, there are so many elements, so many sources of power distributed and they all have different characteristics and there's no um, very, there's no unique uh, database which tells you, you know, this power generator is such and such and they it's located at this position with this orientation with the so there's, there's so many variables that uh, make the prediction very difficult and that's what uh, the market operators have been facing and and so they, they they've um, moved on from the subsidies and now they are also thinking about reducing the amount of power that uh, this rooftop solar can provide to the grid because they can cause problems when there is too much coming in. So to, to, just to pick up on that, David, you you working in quite a few developing countries like Sri Lanka, to, to name one, do you think this local market, uh, you know, the flourishing of potentially local markets for renewables, do you think that's something that, that's liable to take off? I think it's a it's a huge uh, potential because one in many many countries the uh, the grid is not uh, so robust. So you know, for Sri Lanka as a case, it means the the grid is uh, it, it exists uh, and there is a national grid, but there are power cuts because it doesn't operate very efficiently. And the notion that perhaps with a a bit of investment you could actually 
create a local market. So it's rather a, it's a, the local grid as opposed to a national grid. Um, it doesn't, I mean, in a way, I guess, to ask uh, Alberto, is that it doesn't, doesn't stop you having the same problems, but perhaps it means that you at least connect, can extend the access to energy in places. What, what are your feelings about that, Alberto? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, that, that is um, one solution. I mean, there's been um, various projects also funded by the World Bank. Um, I know some in the Pacific Islands, uh, uh, in this side of the world, in near Australia, uh, where they attempted to create kind of island systems and uh, and see to what extent you can sustain that. And of course, you need uh, storage for that. And uh, at the moment, the main source of storage is batteries. Uh, but in any case, not just for this island systems, you still need storage. And that's and 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 that's the kind of holy grail at the moment because in order for the variable renewables to really take off, you need that kind of backing that is not provided by the traditional sources, if you wish. Of course, you could always use uh, some of the traditional, but uh, many ways in which this is being looked at is um, electrical storage, but also pumped hydro storage where you can. So, I mean, locally, you can uh, most places, even in Australia, which is not very um, high in altitude, you can build uh, 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 artificial, uh, any dam is artificial in fact, but uh, you build this kind of uh, dams where you store the water you need uh, um, to to uh, then uh, el electrify the uh, you, your users when uh, where there's not enough wind or solar, let's say. So um, it, it is something that is certainly could be used in uh, in developing countries which are still um, you know lacking the, the the grid and therefore that's a way to leapfrog the system and and you don't need to go through the a national grid in order to provide electricity so that so this is this is quite uh, you know something that is achievable in principle uh, but uh, the the question as I said is is the storage how you you uh, produce the uh, the technology, not produce the technology, but that you apply the technology in order to get the stable production of electricity given the variable sources that would come normally from wind and solar. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Alberto, I, I wanted just to pick up on, on a point uh, you made, which is very interesting, I think, and that is that the renewable sector, the the energy renewable energy operators are, of course, they are um, making local uh, meteorological measurements, weather and climate measurements, um, and actually, you you know, those are clearly going into uh, their own local statistical models and also merging and blending with NWP. One of the aspects, though, that we talked about in the weather pod quite often is that you know the numerical weather predictions from the major centers um, really benefit hugely if those kind of local uh, data which typically don't go into uh, the sort of initial conditions for the forecasts 
but they are terribly important to provide verification data so that in a sense the the centers can uh, see where the errors are coming from in their numerical weather predictions and there's a very sort of virtuous feedback loop there between you know the the ability of the uh, centers to to provide to the energy sector good forecasts and equally the energy providers making accessible the, the observations to validate the models. However, I just wonder and worry that that maybe these data from the energy companies are in a sense commercial in confidence. And are they are they willing to to and happy to provide these data widely so that the uh, national centers can and, and other centers can benefit from them? So the obviously this is a very important matter and it's something that I've actually worked on uh, on and off for many years because uh, you know I was working for example at CSRO in Australia and we were collecting all the solar radiation available in Australia and it turned out that uh, you know the Bureau of Meteorology of course has very high quality data but they're they're only a dozen stations and, and now probably less than that because they are very subject to the funding. And, and so we found many places, other places, and it's not just the energy companies. Actually, you find that uh, agricultural station, they have a lot of solar radiation that uh, could be very useful for both both the energy, but also the, the weather forecast, like you're saying. And and then you start to do this work and you find that, yeah, some data can be obtained, but then the characteristics are not quite as you'd expect because, uh, the, for example, the resolution is not good enough. But more than that is the quality because often you, you need to spend a lot of time trying to clean the data when, when it is available. Uh, in the cases of energy companies, though, most of the time they're not available and Partly it's because of uh, commercial sensitivities, and and that's uh, that it is an obstacle, and and it's not. I don't think there is a clear solution yet. But the other aspect is that even if uh, uh, this energy companies were to share the data, there would be uh, an expected or likely burden on them, because not only they they need to provide the data, they would also need to kind of offer support to explain, you know, where is this data? And, and that's what, that's what they, um, some, most companies also want to avoid, to be, um, you know, end up spending a lot of time trying to answer questions about this data. Because obviously, you know, the, um, it's important to have the data, but then you also need to have a, a good quality, or at least understand where the, the drawbacks or the limitations of the data are. And that's that exchange is, it turns out to be quite costly, um, at least according to the discussions I've had with many companies. We also set up like a, a, for a while, a working group with Wind Europe and for the exact purpose to, you know, engage with um, in, wind industry companies to see whether they were uh, happy to share this data and, Unfortunately, that didn't go very far. So the, the, the most recent uh, and promising uh, innovation in this respect is uh, some kind of economic models that 
basically allow people to share the data and to get some kind of return, which could be economic, an economic return if, uh, if the data are used in such a way that uh, raise some funds. So there, there, are, there is a group that I know of, of but uh, there's probably now a few more because this activity started a few years ago. And they are trying to optimize uh, this kind of uh, exchange models so that's, that's, I think, the most promising path I can see in order for companies to share. Otherwise, the only other way that, uh, you know, research and uh, uh, community has uh, benefited from this is through one-to-one or maybe one-to-two or whatever non-disclosure agreements. So you use the data for a while, you improve uh, and you get the information you want, but then you most of the time you can't even publish the data because they are under this uh, non-disclosure agreements. So this sort of leads to also how you use products like the reanalysis from numerical weather prediction centers. Um, I mean, how how useful is? Well, I assume it's useful that you're constantly updating the climatology and should we give it, should if you have access to additional inf- uh, additional data that's obviously going to help improve the ver- uh, verification and subsequently improve the reanalysis and so forth. What what's the how is that kind of information used from a point of view of locating uh, renewable energy sites in, in d- different pl- different countries? Yeah, I think reanalysis uh, is hugely important in uh, in um, planning and f- uh, not so much financing, but uh, there are different levels of uh, of planning in in wind and solar, particularly, and and so it comes. The first step is to have a broad idea where you want to go, and and then you once you find that you go deeper in that. So reanalysis help with the first step to to work out the, uh, roughly where you get the best resource. But not only that, because uh, then reanalysis is also used for as a boundary condition, as a constraint to the higher resolution models, because of course you can't run the, the higher resolution models at the resolution you need for the financing, which um, you require resolutions of 100 meters or less, actually probably 10 meters or something. And so you, um, you use the reanalysis as a boundary condition for all these models. And normally you actually go to through two steps. So you do the mesoscale, so where you go to maybe uh, tens of kilometers resolution and or less, and then uh, microscale modeling where you go to 100 meters or less. So, so reanalysis are always there. And, and, and the thing that they brought in actually also is the um, ability to extend the the time series. So not just uh, having this global view and be able to constrain the models at the spatial scale, but also to have a, uh, an idea of the variability over many, many years. Because uh, when, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, when the first solar power plants so, and before that, uh, the, the wind power from farms were financed, they were relying on observed data on site. And because you couldn't wait too long, then uh, people were happy to accept maybe a year or two of data. 
uh, that even if they were local and so very representative of the site, you had uh, obviously uh, not enough knowledge about uh, the long-term variability. And so a lot of surprises came up because you, you were measuring wind or in a period when, let's say, El Nino was uh, on, and then you find out uh, if uh, you get effects from ENSO in that region, and then you find out that the, the, what you produce is very different from what you planned. And so that's, that's where, you know, reanalysis has also been very helpful because they, they give this long-term perspective over 40 and now even 70 years with era five. And, and so, so, so that's, um, that's been, uh, you know, Kind of game changer in uh, in the industry. Does does uh, machine learning and AI come into this in terms of downscaling? And... So machine learning and AI at the moment are mainly used for short term predictions. So what by short term I mean the minutes to hours, like uh, we were talking about before. So, and then uh, and then you blend these models with uh, numerical weather predictions as you move on and also with satellite data in some cases where you can use it so like you know satellite data are used for tracking clouds for example which are used for uh, for solar power uh, predictions but the um, machine learning are most useful um, like yeah that's that's basically the how they function they need a lot of data so they very data hungry and 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 the most amount of data are available when you are looking at short-term predictions because you can accumulate a lot of of the observations in that time range they become less useful when you extend the range uh, particularly when you go to seasonal forecast when you have fewer cases the statistics become slimmer and they're well supported less supported in in that regard but uh, there is certainly um, a huge wave of new developments and innovation in machine learning and artificial intelligence and i expect you know for example also with uh, with patents it's not just uh, time series prediction is also um, looking at patents and um, uh, Perhaps uh, uh, as a, as an uh, um, addition to what is being done with satellite, but also we didn't talk about sky cameras, for example. Sky cameras is another innovation that have in in the field of solar power, which uh, started about um, let's say seven eight years ago, maybe ten. And and this is very very important for the short term prediction because obviously you can see you know the clouds moving and so on. Um, so order of seconds to a few hours the sky cameras are really really useful and and by coupling this also with machine learning that allows you to map um, the patterns or the images then uh, um, i'm sure this is going to be a very powerful innovation you're listening to weatherpod with alan thorpe and david rogers alberto i'd like to to just move topic slightly uh, in the conversation. <clears throat> we know the, the weather value chain um, is, you know, at the at the user end of the value chain sort of falls into two, two sort of distinct parts. One is where weather information is tailored for specific uses, say by the energy sector. So it, it's very much um, 
we talked about, for example, downscaling, uh, and you, you just talked about uh, patterns of clouds, etc. So there's there's ways in which the the weather data can be tailored to better uh, give information for the energy sector. But there's increasingly a second area where, which we could call integrated services, where we actually think about merging together, uh, not just the weather information, but also, for example, uh, you know, the, the energy demand data uh, and also the energy supply data uh, into a, a more integrated uh, model that would enable, um, you know, more efficient and effective use of, of renewable energy. And I'm just curious to know, do you think that that area of the development of, you know, merging bigger data sets um, in integrated services. Is that something that you see as an opportunity? Yes and no, in, in the sense that um, the uh, this kind of developments are normally done by large companies. So as you can imagine, the, the more complex the problem and when you try to merge or blend demand you know, combine the demand, the supply from various sources, it becomes more complex, the problem. So the, the thing is that for such a service or model to be useful, it needs to be very realistic. And in order to be very realistic, you need to have a lot of complexity, which is what uh, the grid has. And, uh, you know, that, that it's not just about what kind of power goes in. It's, uh, you know, all the obstructions on the grid and uh, downtimes, um, maintenance and so on. So it's it's a very complex kind of modeling. And and so normally this is done at uh, either large company levels, like say the EDF for France or NL for Italy and, and, and more globally as well, uh, or um, done or supervised by national grid operators like national grid in the UK and, and so on. So, and, and for Europe, there is also another body that uh, actually coordinates uh, activities across all the transmission operators, which is called uh, ENSTOE, so the European Transmission Operators Organization. And so it's only when you get to that uh, um you know, you get that kind of scale uh, that you can manage the complexity of these models. So what, what's happening, for example, in terms of the service that I was mentioning, the climate service for the uh, energy sector provided by Copernicus, uh, it, you know, we provide the elements, we provide the, um, the climate data that is useful. We also convert them into demand and, uh, and supply, but, uh, it would be too big a task for people with, um, like I said, with climate knowledge, but not uh, not the knowledge of the operations, day-to-day operation, to be able to provide a solution, a practical solution to this problem. When you say it, it's, a, it's a big task, and of course, in, in many respects, you're absolutely right, it is. But um, I think uh, members of the, if you like, the artificial intelligence machine learning community and the data analytics uh, side would say, actually, that complexity is something that's becoming feasible. Uh, and actually, the benefits of of merging these and bringing these data sets together, while it might be complex, 
actually the benefits could could be could outweigh that and so and i guess it's a personal view from my side is yes it's as you say very complex but but also represents a, a medium term opportunity um to to really take take matters forward yes i mean i i um you know it's it's good to to be challenged and uh, i know you know the is uh, the uh, future earth um Destination Earth, yes, that's right. Thanks. Yeah, so so yeah, I, you know, I'm aware of the uh, ambition of programs like Destination Earth, and you know, it's it's very good that they try this. But even even then, um, you know, the the emphasis is more on improving the kind of output in, in terms of meteorology or, or rather than the application. I know that there is talks about reaching uh the you know expanding the boundaries and so on but in a sense it, it becomes um i think it's still it's still too complex and and this the complexity also is to do with uh commercial sensitivities and so on so um that's you know for example we we have been working closely in um in, in a european project called uh firm with um nl and we were never uh, put in a position where we could see what was done by the conversion models that take climate data into energy data because that's handled in a, in a confidential manner commercially sensitive manner by by the company which is yeah like i said it's it's because there's so many years of knowledge and they build that business on that, and to me, I mean, it's it would be very, very hard, if not impossible, to to break that uh, kind of chain, and 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 that's that that would be the same for other sectors. Um, so it's as I said, it's it's uh, laudable the fact that uh, we want to provide the best service for various sectors, but we, from the meteorology perspective, I mean, we. Also need to realize that there, the, the, there is a lot of complexity out there that we cannot solve by just throwing a lot of computer power, a lot of you know new innovation and so on. So I yeah that's that's where I think we there is a there is a limit. But I think that's that, a very cautionary note actually, yeah. Alberto. But I think I think when we when we think about integrated services in a way where we are talking about just what you've described is that these these this information is brought together in a place where you can make a decision so that is done within a large company but they're obviously they have to have access to the right information and these streams of information have to flow into that system so that in that is where it's being integrated and i and i think it's the the distinction here between the um, the kind of services, the tailored services of the meteorologist of the past, where the meteorologist hands over information about meteorology, and the integrated service when the user of the information is dragging that, pulling that information into a system that they are operating, is more what we're we're talking about when we talk about integrated services. It's not this. Uh, it's a relationship that's changed dramatically. That you know you're going to effectively as a company you're going to have to have the skill sets available to you internally and the information has to be available to you 
to make those decisions. And, and clearly the energy sector is, is effectively a prime example of, of utilising integrated services as opposed to the past of tailored services. The meteorologist provides the product and the, the user then takes that. So I think that it, that's actually a positive example. It, it moves on also to this notion that we, we well, they're not, not more the notion, the, the, the key theme uh, of uh, our weather pods, and that's the relationship between public, private, and uh, academic sectors. So we, we, within the global weather enterprise, we each has a role to play. The roles are not strictly defined. I mean, there are, there are blurs between them. And clearly your own organization, the World Energy and Meteorology Council, uh, kind of recognizes that. You sit within a university, the U UEA. Uh, you engage with the private sector. You also are working with the uh, World Meteorological Organization and uh, the, the public meteorological sector. So a question for you is how, um, how do you see this these relationships evolving in the future as 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 the whole energy sector uh, changes and i mean will it restructure in a way that will be different from where it is today i mean how, how do you view it yeah so so th that's uh, um, a very exciting area that uh, we're we're also working on and it it, it, it uh, links back to what uh, we were saying before in terms of uh, integrated services so I think one one thing about integrated services that uh, the the term itself may create confusion because uh, integrated gives a sense that uh, you <laughs> you bring everything together under one umbrella, which is not uh, what uh, what actually happens in practice. And and so I think the important thing is where to understand where the boundaries are. So when you you know work with industry, uh, one of the first thing you want to know is you know what what is required and where where do we start where do you stop and uh, where how do you create this uh, communication and and flow of information and how it uh, it can best flow from one to the other and that's what uh, we've been working on at um, at WEMC. so um, most of the work we do and projects um, including the one i mentioned before but others as well is about uh, this which is kind of new terminology, if you wish, in, uh, particularly in the, in the area of climate services, is this co-design, co-development, and even co-production. And so the, the, what, what it means is basically um, that you get this much closer uh, relationship and conversation with the industry. And, and I think we, that's what uh, we're helping also to do with uh, our organization is to get to create a closer link so that there is it's there's more clarity about what is possible from the meteorology com community um, so that you avoid you know people from the industry coming there and say oh yeah i want that uh, temperature on that building uh, at that particular time of day uh, 10 years from now and it has an accuracy of five percent or something you know and that's I guess a bit how it started because you 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 were getting all this kind of uh, uh, sometimes uh, absurd, but they're absurd because obviously there is not enough information shared and uh, enough discussion, uh, and and so by having this closer conversation, the the system becomes more efficient because you don't have to go 
back and forth and say, oh, I want that. No, no, that's not available. You get that instead and, and all these things. So um, a lot of these conversations have happened, are happening, and it's helping that, that, that link. Having said that, we go back to the point of where the boundaries are. And so, you know, we can create a better flow uh, and, and um, improve the efficiency of the information of the flow and, and, and provide the best information we can. But ultimately, um, yeah, there is, there is a, a place where meteorology uh, needs to know where to stop and, uh, and, and then hand in the, the keys, if you wish, of uh, a new a brand new car to the industry so they can uh, drive uh, in a safer and faster way. You've mentioned keys and I want to just say we've covered some really key topics today in, in this conversation, Alberto, and really about the value of, of weather and climate information for the energy sector, renewable energy in particular, of course. So it really only remains for me to say thank you so much, Alberto, for taking part in this. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks for joining us and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, it was great talking with you, David and uh, Alan. And um, yeah, have, have a great rest of the day and week. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org. Thank you.